Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And I will only take questions about the Business Center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, don't do that again. Don't Kevin. do that again. But we'll get to that joke we, at we, the we, end. We will explain that uh, inside joke for the three listeners who haven't been on Twitter the past uh, 36 hours. But. Uh, Let's start on a serious tone with uh, some serious numbers that um, you came out with this week, Clark, on where the state is in terms of meeting its mileposts uh, under the federal education law. The numbers are not good. Yeah, Kevin, I worked with Randy Schrader, our data analyst, and uh, crunched the numbers. And for the second year in a row, Idaho, Idaho schools missed every single one of their interim targets, their benchmark goals uh, for math and English language arts for the different student populations identified. It's called the Consolidated State Plan. It's Idaho's plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act. You might hear people call that ESA or the ESSA plan. Um, But anyways, there's 22 long-term goals that were included in this big plan. And, And it's significant. These goals didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, they weren't invented out of thin air or, they didn't come from or the rushed feds. together. They didn't come from the feds. Actually, Idaho education leaders spent about two years developing this consolidated state plan. It had a new accountability system. It talked about how we would implement federal programs. Uh, but one of the things that it included was these long-term goals for where we wanted education to be in the state of Idaho. And these goals actually come due in the year 2022. And so there could be some time to turn it around, but the goals are all about reducing the number of students, so the percentage of students who are not scoring at proficient benchmarks on their tests in math and English language arts. And it's really important because for these goals, we are talking about, um, you know, statewide goals, but we're talking about vulnerable student populations. So it's students with disabilities, Mm -hmm. economically disadvantaged students, students with limited English proficiency, Hispanic and Latino students, black students, American Indians, and Alaskan Natives. It's all these different types of student groups. And every single one of the goals for the second year in a row, we fell short. And in almost all cases, the gap between actual achievement and what the goal is, is wider than it was last year. And so it seems... So we're not just not meeting goals. We're losing ground towards meeting these goals. Right. And what we're looking at, just to be really clear, is the interim targets, the benchmarks along the way. And so the goal comes due in 2022, and and Idaho education leaders divided it year by year. On year one, we want to make this much progress. On year two, we want to be here. Year three, we want to be here so that six years down the road in 2022 uh, that we'll be on track to to meet those goals. So for the very first two years, uh, we missed all of the goals in math and English language arts for our student populations. And and I think it's all cases but one. We're actually farther away from the benchmark than we were last year. And so just... So a lot of catch-up would have to be made uh, over the course of three years if you want to hit these goals by 2022. it's, It's much harder today to hit the goals than if we had been making our interim targets along the way. There's right. much more work to do, and so it casts doubt upon whether we will be able to make it. But just to give you a sense of the goals, uh, let's look at Hispanic and, and Latino student okay. populations. The goal for math uh, for 2019 was to have 35% of Hispanic and Latino students score at proficient 
uh, or better on their on their math tests on their ISATs. Actual performance twenty five point nine percent. That's only up from twenty five point two percent the year before. So we're ten po- we're almost ten points percentage points shy of the goal, and we moved up less than one percentage point from mm-hmm. the year before. And so I asked some officials about this whether right, this right. was the a concern, whether we were leaving these vulnerable populations behind, why we weren't meeting our goals. Uh, And I talked to Linda Clark, the State Board of Education member, who was actually president of the State Board of Education when the state submitted these goals two years ago. She said it is a big concern. Uh, She said the State Board needs to talk about this, that now that we have two years of data, we need to ask some hard questions about this. And so I think the State Board of Education likely will take this up. And I don't know exactly how the conversation is going to be, but just based on my short interview with Linda Clark, I think they could do one of two things. They could talk about the strategies to increasing proficiency and to reaching these goals and to doing a better job, or they could take a look at whether the goals are appropriate and realistic and maybe realign the goals. And I'm not sure how that will go, but it sounds like either one of those could be discussed. But when I talked with Carlin Laraway from the State Department of Education, uh, she heads up the uh, accountability um, and assessment efforts for the state. I talked to her about it, a little bit different reaction. Uh, she said we're proud of our teachers and, uh, and our students and that yes, we fell short of our goals. Uh, but one thing she told me is that, you know, Clark, you can't just look at what Idaho didn't do. You have to look at what Idaho did do. And it, and it's, but it's like, I wanna talk about these specific goals. The state mm-hmm. leaders spent two years developing this plan and everybody signed off on it, right? State Board of Education voted unanimously to approve it. State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ubarra, signed off on it. State Board of Education member Linda Clark signed off on it. Then Governor Butch Otter signed off on it. And then they submitted it to the U.S. Department of Education, uh, where they asked for some initial revisions. And then Betsy DeVos and her team, the U.S. Secretary of Education, signed off on it. So a lot of thought and time went into these goals. A lot of people weighed in and signed off. And so... I think it's perfectly fair to, for us to go back to this plan, which was a major news story at the time and a major project, and say, how are we doing here? And, and how are what we are doing we, on, st- on goals that we as a state set for ourselves? For ourselves and for some of our most vulnerable student groups. And you've already reported about the concerns with um, the numbers, for instance, the go-on rate for Hispanic and Latino students mm-hmm. and where that stacks up, how they compare to their peers, and how other states are doing. And so... There's areas of concern here, and I mean, overall proficiency for all students across the state in math was only 45%, less than Mm -hmm. half. And some of these student subgroups, um, I I mean, you're seeing 15% proficient with students with limited English proficiency, 12.8% of students with disabilities. We're not meeting our goals, and and, and so I I wanted to to share that and, and to put that out there, and I think it's important and I think it's totally fair to come back to this and look at this report and say a lot of people weighed in and said this is where we need to be going this is what we need to be doing to decrease the percentages of students who are not scoring at proficient and we haven't met any of those goals. So here's the question I still have here and I don't know if we can answer this question. Um, The state sets education goals all the time. I think about the 60% goal for uh, post-secondary completion where we've not made progress and we've moved back the timeline. I think about our goal of having a 95% graduation rate. Uh, This feels different in that there is something binding here 
in that the state submitted this as part of its plan to comply with the federal education law. What happens in 2022 if we're talking about the same problems of hitting, not benchmarks, but hitting the ultimate goal? I mean, what happens in terms of, what do the feds do if the state doesn't meet any of these goals or meets only a handful of these goals? And, and I think that's probably an unanswerable question because it's 2022, could be a whole different administration. But I wonder about that. It's a great question. And I did ask Carlin Laraway from the State Department of Education about it when we sat down together. I think it was two weeks ago. She said that there's nothing that she's seen in the Every Student Succeeds Act that talks about accountability or a potential consequence for not meeting the long-term goals by 2022. So as far as our state leaders are concerned, they're not aware of anything that would happen in terms of additional accountability, scrutiny, a consequence, or any type of an action from the federal government or otherwise. She said, we don't know, we don't see anything in the Every Student Succeeds Act that's in there. There's nothing in our plan that talks about that. And, and like you alluded to, we don't know who's going to win the 2020 election. And we've also, earlier this year, I think our Sammy Edge was at a conference, uh, saw Betsy DeVos speak, who seemed to indicate that maybe even if President Trump is reelected next year, she may or may not return to the U.S. Department of Education. And so it is very unclear, but as of right now, state education officials are not aware of any consequence or action or accountability that would come into play if we missed some or even all of those goals by 2022. They sort of said that just identifying it could be a form of accountability. Um, but I think we have to stay tuned, and, and it, this is something that we're going to continue mm -hmm. to follow yeah. up on. I'm going to follow the State Board of Education and see if they take it up and where that discussion goes, see if the goals are recalibrated. And Idaho's plan has been amended at least once since it was submitted uh, back in 2018, and they admitted they amended a goal dealing with progress towards language proficiency, um, and that was actually a... Uh, one of the things that changed. Uh, and so it could be amended again, but we'll continue to follow that. And, and, I, and I may want to go out, I talked to some state education leaders about this. I may want to follow up in a different way and see if I can talk with maybe parents or, or taxpayers or members of the Hispanic and Latino community about this, because I think that this is sort of a, it, it seemed important and, and it mm -hmm. seems like yes, not a lot of people are talking about it or even aware of, of this consolidated state plan or our education goals and how we're doing. And, and I get it. There's a lot of data floating out there, a lot of information about our schools, a lot of different things we track for accountability purposes. You mentioned the 60% goal, the go on rate is a focal point, high school graduation rates. And so it's easy to get overwhelmed by everything. Um, but this seems significant. This was a major plan submitted to the federal government that our top leaders signed off on and it talks about moving the needle for disadvantaged and vulnerable student populations. And, and we just haven't done it. Right. Uh, and there is time. There is time, absolutely. 2022 is when the goals are due. But, but as you said, when you look at the math and when you look at where we are today relative towards those benchmarks, those interim targets, we have even more work to do now than we did when the plan was first turned in. And so if you want to get caught up on it, a little bit of inside baseball, but I, I promise I think it's important. No, and it's an important update. There's um, a lot there that's really important for people to yeah. get their heads wrapped around. Yeah, and if you want to go to the homepage, idahoednews.org, scroll back to the beginning of this week, talking about Idaho missing 
uh, its targets uh, for math and English language arts. I think I published that story back on Monday, beginning part of this week. But we'll continue to follow up on it. And if you guys listening have any thoughts or any suggestions or any feedback, you can reach out on Twitter, uh, send us a message through the website. Um, love to hear what you think about this, particularly if you're an educator or a parent. Um, is this something you track? Is this something you talk about? Uh, but I'd love to hear from you. And, and, and I think that it's important and I think we should keep talking about it. You can check out the homepage and find out the rest and, and we'll continue to watch it and see uh, kind of what tenor the State Board of Education discussion takes when they do take it up. Okay. Well, let's shift gears to something completely different. Uh, the latest in the debate over uh, higher education and... Uh... We've got a new player in the mix, uh, Republican State Representative Chad Christensen from the Idaho Falls area. And uh, he's weighed in. Um, but this kind of... Uh, we've talked about this almost every week, but these... This issue with particularly Boise State University, but some of the conservative members, particularly the Idaho House, have some questions and concerns about diversity and inclusivity programs uh, at the university. Uh, can, you know, they've sort of butted heads with new President mm -hmm. Marlene Trump since the very first week that she arrived on campus. But uh, what did you track this week and where is the debate taking us now? Well, the debate is taking us to restrooms, and uh, specifically it's taking us to uh, gender-neutral restrooms at Boise State University. Uh, Representative Chad Christensen posted a photo on his Facebook page a week ago of the outside of a gender-neutral restroom, and he pointed out that the restroom, uh, you can find tampons and pads in the restrooms, and he expressed surprise that state tax dollars are going towards uh, tampons and pads, and used it as a vehicle to complain about what he sees as the liberal agenda at Boise State University and pushing for defunding Boise State. He's not the first legislator to, to broach the idea of def right. defunding Boise State. Tammy Nichols, a uh, lawmaker from Middleton, uh, broached the same idea a couple of weeks ago. You know, I I'm still... Not sure how defunding really works politically or if it's really feasible politically. Christensen is a little bit like Nichols in the sense that he's a first-term legislator. Not, yeah, not he's on the joint Not budget on the budget committee, committee. Not on the education committee. He's not on the education committee. So he's... Not a committee chair, not in leadership. Um, certainly has influence among, uh, uh, you know, within the conservative wing of, of the House and, and, and certainly his constituents supported him, but... Um, not, not, not in a high place in the legislature. Right, right. But I think he represents a growingly vocal cadre of conservative legislators in the House who have really focused a lot of their attention and a lot of their scrutiny on Boise State. Right. Um, now, it's not that Boise State is necessarily unique within the higher education community in Idaho in terms of diversity and inclusion programs. You, you, have, uh, you have universities and colleges trying to find ways to be more inclusive and trying to accommodate uh, students of color, uh, LGBT students. This is not necessarily unique to Boise State, but it seems to be a, the, the political backlash seems to be very much directed at Boise State and at the new president of Boise State, Marlene Trump. So, yeah, the whole story took on uh, 
a life of its own on social media after the after the post uh, from representing. I was going to say, how did that work out for him, for Mad Chad? Yes, uh, that, that's that's part of how it turned out. So, as you might expect, the the backlash, the comments, the reaction was sharply divided. Some people siding with Christians and saying, "Yes, it is time to defund Boise State, whatever that, for whatever form that would take." You had a, a number of critics really saying, "You know, we're." debating about tampons, we're debating about pads. Uh, Twitter, uh, the, you know, Twitter critics uh, coined a, a hashtag, mm-hmm. pads for mad Chad. And some actually sent tampons and pads to representative Christians and who, who then uh, turned around a couple of days ago and said, he's going to take all of these d- items and donate them to local shelters in, in his area. But, you know, Make no mistake, I think there's a very, there's something happening here that's different in terms of the debate over higher education. This feels uh, more visceral and it feels more emotional than we've seen in the past. It's not just a debate about funding, it's not just a debate about how many dollars does the state have to put into higher education. That's That's a debate in and of itself. But this has become a values issue, it's become a morals issue, it's become a hot button issue that I think we're going to hear a lot more about going into this legislative session. And and it seems like Boise State is a target, and and, and that's what they are. There's a target, but I, I I don't know how much time Chad Christensen has spent in in schools. But it's a pretty common thing: colleges, universities, schools, to have things like toilet paper and paper towels and sink in the restrooms. And the idea of a gender-neutral restroom, I mean, I I wrote about this on Monday. I wrote the blog on Monday. The next day, I was in a coffee shop, and lo and behold, there was a gender-neutral restroom. This is not something that Boise State just dreamt up and is doing in a vacuum. I mean, this is hardly unique to the campus. No, I mean, I think almost every gas station I've visited has a gender-neutral bathroom. But also to the point about uh, the pads and these items that that are in restrooms... You know, go to a school nurse at any public school in the state of Idaho. You know, shockingly, I don't want to shock anyone here, but they're going to have pads. Uh, they're going to have tampons. They're going to have things like that. I visited a very remote rural school about three weeks ago uh, out in western Idaho, and, and I had to use the restroom. And so the superintendent, who was kind of giving me a tour, said, oh, we have an adult's bathroom here. You can use this adult's bathroom. This is great. I walked in there. They had mouthwash and a shaving razor and deodorant. They just have some of those things. It's not shocking or crazy. Boise State's not out on the fringe here. Um, But they are being targeted and singled out when I think there's uh, political reasons why they're being singled out. I don't think it just has to do with the fact that some legislator had this epiphany that, oh my goodness, there's pads behind the door in this gender-neutral bathroom because I got news for you. <laughs> uh, they're, they're all over the state, um, you know. And, and there's a there's a odd political dynamic uh, under undercutting all of this or or flavoring all of this. Marlene Trump has, you know, for some reason generated such a visceral reaction from some conservative legislators. But at the same time, in in the uh, and you saw it on Tuesday. She has a lot of support. She is, you know, she is you know, resonating and hitting and registering with people in a way that we don't normally see with a new university president. I mean, I saw her on, I want to say, Tuesday evening with the other college and university presidents and Governor Brad Little. 
Governor Brad Little seemed very comfortable with her, friendly with her, and it was very cordial. It was it was Brad and Marlene. It wasn't Governor mm-hmm. Little and President Trump. It was Brad and Marlene and Scott and Jim and, and Kevin. Um, but the, the governor... Not me, Kevin. Kevin Satterley. Yeah, yeah, Kevin, Kevin that Satterley. Kevin. That other Kevin. But this was a fascinating uh, event at a tech startup conference that I went to where I saw these four university presidents talking with the governor about collaborating, about working together, about increasing the go-on rate, about the value of research. But I think some conservative legislators are being confused here about Dr. Trump, about President Trump, because she didn't write that newsletter over the summer Mm -hmm. about the diversity and inclusivity programs. That was her predecessor, the interim president, Martin Schimpf, who wrote that letter. And and so it's not like she arrived on campus on July 1st and then all of a sudden said, we're going to launch these diversity programs and we're going to make all the restrooms gender neutral. I think that's a little unfair. And I think Republicans, some of these Republicans are confused about what they're supposed to be angry about. Right. And, and you know, and I guess also if you're, if you're looking for you know, a path forward in this debate, maybe a, a bright spot in this debate, and it has become a very emotional debate, uh, one thing that I did take note of this week on my blog, uh, campus Republicans and campus Democrats. This is awesome. State. This is really, really interesting. I'm really looking forward to this event. Uh, Boise State Republican group and the Young Democrats group came together to put together a panel discussion about diversity and, uh, and inclusion programs. They have uh, two Democratic legislators and two Republican legislators who are going to appear. Uh, and folks who have been really involved in this debate, Barbara Ehard from Idaho Falls is going to be one of the speakers. The author of the letter. The author of the letter that started this whole controversy back in July. Uh, Matt Erpelding, the House Minority Leader, who has uh, written a guest opinion of his own, uh, taking the other side of this debate. I think it's really kind of cool that uh, the student groups of both political parties came together to put together a bipartisan event with a bipartisan panel, so credit to them. Hats off to them, absolutely. And credit to the legislators who are going to be participating. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. So if there's a silver lining in all of this, is that maybe it's the students who are most directly affected by the outcome of this debate saying, we need to have a discussion, let's get the... Let's get the players at the same table and let's have that discussion. Oh, so I'm super impressed with the students who are stepping up and taking action, realizing that it affects them, but acting like the adults in the room in, in terms of putting together an event like this to have a civil, thoughtful discussion. I'm absolutely impressed by the students uh, from the college Republicans and from the Young Democrats for coming together, putting this on. I think it's awesome. I think they're showing us the way. I think they're being mature and being the adults here. Uh, and so I think this is fantastic. I, th- I think this is awesome. That forum's coming up on October 22nd, and we will cover it. One of us will be there. Yes, uh, for sure. Yeah, we'll tell you all about it. We'll have full coverage. We'll let you know what's discussed, what the lawmakers say, what students are saying. I'm really looking forward to this. I yeah. think this is cool. Let's get to one other topic that feels like an evergreen topic here, but uh, the ongoing saga of the State Board of Education appointment process. Uh, this feels like one of those onions that you that I keep yeah. trying to... Uh, unravel more layers. Um, I'll walk you through a little bit of what we learned this week because there isn't a whole lot we learned, but it is still interesting stuff. I asked the governor's office to provide me an up-to-date list of how many people have applied for the vacancies on the State Board of Education because you go back to June, the governor's office released a list of 38 names 
38 applicants. Well, we know that list was dated yeah. <laughs> because come September, uh, Governor Little appointed Sean Keogh, the long-term legislator, to the State Board of Education. She had not applied in, by June. Her name did not appear on that list. She applied in August, and lo and behold, she was appointed. So I went back to the governor's office and said, okay, what's the list now? And was not provided the list right away. I had to do a public records request to get the list. Don't do that again. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm just doing my job here, people. <laughs> you know, um, and I also asked for application materials. I did want to get the resumes. They did not provide the resumes. They did provide me a list. And what we learned this time around is that the list is now 45 people who have applied for state board vacancies, and there is still one vacancy. So mm -hmm. this is still a, you know all in play. A couple of names jumped out at me. Uh, applicants we did not know about. Uh, Chuck Zimmerly, who right. is one of the top candidates to State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra, who's already a state board member herself. Uh, Zimmerly has applied. Uh, a couple of former state board members, Laird Stone, who is now a trustee for a College of Southern Idaho. Jim Hammond, who's also a former legislator from the, from the Panhandle, uh, was also a former member of the uh, State Public Charter School Commission. I think he was one of the founding members of that commission and a former state board member. So we know of those applicants on top of the 38 applicants we already knew about in June. And one other plot twist, it feels like there's a plot twist around every corner on this story. The list of 45 names does not include one name, Brad Rice. Right. If you remember Brad Rice and how he entered into the saga, he was the guy who said that Governor Little approached him in August and offered him a spot on the State Board of Education. Rice turned it down. He's uh, wanting to focus on his continuing work on the uh, Board of Trustees in the Lewiston School District. So he told the governor no, but he never applied. <laughs> he, you know, his, his, his name does not appear even on the revised list of applicants. So we keep trying to unravel the story. I, I'm very curious as to how we got to this point and how this process has played out from an open application period, a publicly announced deadline, to clearly the governor is expanding his uh, scope and widening the net beyond those uh, initial applicants. We keep trying to unravel it. And, and it's important. This is such a pivotal pair of appointments that the governor is making. This, this board has so much influence over K-12 and higher education policy that the process really matters. So we're really continuing to try to unravel. I've submitted another records request. We'll keep doing it. I just really want to try to help explain to readers how this process has gotten to this point. Well, let's get right into it, because you talk about wanting to help explain to readers how the process has gotten into this. And so let's just pause for just a second and take a step back. And, and why are you doing this? Why are you bothering the governor's office? And then we'll transition to why am I bothering the State Department of Education about this red tape committee? But but why are we doing this? Are you yeah. just trying to pick a fight, Kevin? Or, or, or why are you bugging them yeah, about yeah, this? this? Why is, does it this matter? Is, yeah. Warning, listeners, this is your transparency uh, sermon that we do every once in a while, but I think it is important to remind you. The State Board of Education has such a, a huge sphere of influence over education policy in the state. Uh, members like to talk about how this is a unique board because it has governing power over K-12 and higher education. Well, with all of that comes enhanced scrutiny, and we're going to pay more attention to the State Board of Education as a policy-making body, and that means paying attention to 
how the governor is going about the process of filling vacancies on that board for the first time in his uh, in his time as governor. This is this is really important stuff. So, yes, going back and forth with the governor's office about records requests, uh, it's part of the job. It's part of what we what we do. And you know, why do we care about transparency? Why do we keep doing this? You know, why do we you know why do I write about uh, Sherry Barrow, when she doesn't comment about master educator premiums, why do we write about what turned out to be a closed door meeting of a red tape committee, which which you alluded to? It, it's all about our role as journalists trying to shine a light on the operations of government. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not trying to, to pat ourselves on the back here or take a victory lap or get up on our high horse, but I really get the sense that collectively we as journalists don't always explain why we're doing what we're doing, why we take on these issues with, with government agencies in particular. I, you know, I think we don't always do a good job of being transparent about the work we're doing. And so I'm not trying to get up on our high horse or say that you know, we deserve congratulations here. I just want to explain what our motivation is. But it's not just us. We, right. we see it out, outside of, of, it's not just Idaho Education, it's not just Kevin or Clark. We saw a great example with our friend, Keith Drusen, who's on the Guns in America Reporting Project, reports for Boise State Public Radio, uh, has been Im embedded and covered wars overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, had a chance to interview U.S. Senator Jim Risch at a business event the other day and asked Senator Risch uh, about the president and about some of the things going on in Washington right now and about basically turning to, to foreign countries uh, for assistance. And, and looking into some of these matters. And, and, and Senator Risch snapped and ended the interview and said, hey, if you want to talk to me about this business center, that's mm -hmm. great. You're right. uh, but how dare you do that? Or don't do that again. Um, and I think that that was a powerful moment. And, and if you've been on Twitter or, or followed Idaho News in the last 24 hours, you're well aware of this. But this registered with people strongly. And, and Heath, to his credit, said, if by doing that you mean asking tough but fair questions of elected officials about the most important story of the day, then I absolutely am going to do that again. Right. And, and, you know, and, and Heath was trying to get answers that a lot of Idahoans want about an issue of national, international importance. And, you know, you know issues of, of international import, uh, a, a, you know, a humanitarian crisis that's unfolding halfway across the world. I mean, and these are questions that he wanted to ask of a Senate committee chair who is in a prime position to influence policy. So whether it's an issue of that global significance or, you know, as we deal with here, more uh, state education policy, important state education policy issues, you know, it all begins with transparency and it usually begins with asking questions. You know, you know, where do you stand on this Senator Risch? Where do you stand on master educator premiums, Superintendent Ibarra? How are you trying to fill your uh, vacancies on the state board, Governor Little? It begins with questions. That's what we do. We ask questions, and we try to provide you the answers as completely as we get them. And when there are times that we don't get answers, that becomes the story, too. And, and just to close the loop, it isn't about you deserve to tell me this me, Clark, I deserve to know this, or, or Kevin deserves to know this, or Heath deserves to know this. We do it because we feel like these public officials 
should provide some answers and some information to their constituents, to the taxpayers, to the residents, to the patrons. And so it isn't me, Clark, feeling entitled or Heath feeling entitled that Senator Risch owed him this. It's because we, our, our job is to go up and, and to talk to these elected officials and to ask them questions. You know, the average person at home isn't going to walk up to a, a business conference and approach Senator Risch and say, hi, can you please explain, you know, what's going on right now? Uh, and so we're doing it to report back to the public because we think that there is value in asking elected officials to answer for themselves and to explain policy decisions for the public, right, for right. their constituents. That's what now, we're Our doing. jobs provide us a little bit more access, a little bit more of an opportunity to ask these questions. And I think with that, with that opportunity comes responsibility, that, yeah. that we have to ask the questions that are most important to our audience, most important to taxpayers, most important to our community. So, you know, that's why we do what we do. Yeah, it sure is. And, and we'll continue to do it, and that's not going to change. But I just, I'm like I said, not trying to pat ourselves on the back or saying we deserve a thank you, but just I get the sense that journalists don't always explain why they do the things they do. And some of it looks weird, right? Taking on the governor or filing a complaint about an open meeting. Like, that looks really weird and, and, and unusual, right? And so I think that journalists don't always explain what they do or why they do it. And so the thing I like about this podcast is we do have a couple of minutes to sort of tell the story behind the story or to talk about what motivates us or to add an extra layer of transparency into our own business dealings. And, you know, we're not perfect. You know, I'm certainly flawed. I'm not a perfect reporter. I'm not a perfect re person. And sometimes I do things wrong, but I just want to explain, you know, where we're coming from and why we do what we want to do. Um, right. And in the, in the last thing that I would add to this, uh, because this seems to come up sometime in the comments, is it's not personal. I mean, I don't have any animosity. I'm not doing this uh, out of spite. I'm doing this out of uh, what I believe is my job, my responsibility to try to get answers, to try to explain to our audience what's going on on, on matters that are important to our, our kids, important to our, our taxpayers, important to our state. Yeah, so let's end on a bright spot. I've got a positive development that I want to talk about. After I asked about the Red Tape Committee, when I saw it on the superintendent's schedule, I asked about it. I asked if I could attend. I was told no, that it's not subject to the Idaho Open Meeting Act. Uh, they met. They met Wednesday, and members of the committee voted to open up future meetings to the public and to the news media. We don't know exactly when the next meeting will be. Uh, seem to think it might be in December. But that's a positive thing to come out of all of this. No, good for them. We yeah, asked a question, a we pointed it out, and they made a positive decision to say, you know what, if somebody wants to go to this meeting, let them. Um, and, and I think that's, that's great. That's all we can so, ask. We're just asking for the access. Yeah, we just want to know how is the policy being developed. Superintendent Ibarra has said she wants to use this red tape committee to come up with some ideas to, you know, it's self-explanatory here, but cut regulations and cut red tape. We think she'll bring that to the legislature. So we just want to say, okay, what are the concerns here? What, what are the concerns with these, with this amount of red tape that you want to cut? Where's this idea coming from? Let's hear the discussion, and if it's a good idea, let's put it forward for the public and for the legislature. In order, so, in order to better cover the legislative process, we need to see the process leading up to that legislative process, and that's where this Red Tape Committee comes in. So, yeah, so kudos to them. Hats off to Superintendent Ybarra and to the members of the Red Tape Committee uh, for taking it up. Could have been easy to say, no, we said no once, the answer is still no, but uh, 
they said, you know what? Let's let's let the sun shine in. And so that was a real positive development that I feel really good about yep. this week. But uh, I, you know, thanks for indulging that. Um, I just wanted to explain a little bit about what we do because I get the sense that sometimes it's confusing. Uh, but anyways, thanks so much. We have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy, education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.